0: Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights Podcast Series. I'm Alison Hill, State Chief Investment Officer at QIC, and each week we invite our listeners to take 10 and to get an update on economics, markets and other topics of interest for institutional investors. Each podcast, I'm joined by QIC's Chief Economist, Dr. Matthew Peter. Hello, Matthew.
1: Hi, Alison. How are you?
0: Very well, thank you. Matthew, the RBA has been heavily in the news this week, a bit of speculation over who may replace Dr Lowe should he go, and certainly the media is currently reporting um, that he may not be reappointed, Uh, but also a lot of commentary in relation to uh, his speech to the Economic Society here in Brisbane and recommendations from the RBA review itself. But I wanted to actually tackle another aspect of the RBA's thinking that's not gained quite as much press, but I think it's really quite critically important. Um, and that's about Australian productivity, or more precisely, the lack there of productivity. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And clearly, the markets worry about wages growth because they think that is inflationary.
1: Yeah, and all other things equal, Alison. It is inflationary, but higher wages, if they're accompanied by higher productivity, actually can mean that the cost of producing a unit of output may not go up at all. And then high wage growth, in fact, isn't inflationary. Now, at the moment, the problem is that's not happening. In other words, the wage growth isn't being matched by productivity. And and these unit costs, the cost of producing that one unit of output, have actually surged to an annual rate of, wait for it, 8%. Now, that is about four times the rate of growth in unit labour costs. It would be consistent with getting inflation at that target of around two and a half percent.
0: It's a big number, isn't it? Um, and you can see why the RBA is concerned about it. But we also know that productivity can vary, has its ups and downs with the uh, business cycle. So for example, um, when the economy expands rapidly, businesses might not be able to attract workers fast enough to keep up with production. So they may use up that spare capacity they have to, you know, to get that rise in productivity.
1: Well, that's exactly what happened in the initial phase of the exit from COVID, Alison. You know, businesses were expanding their output. They had limited ability to increase their workforce, as we know. No no migrants coming in. Productivity shot up around double the rate of the pre-COVID decade in that period. But now we're at a cyclical low. So you're sort of really
0: seeing the opposite where productivity is falling. But what's really surprising me, and I think potentially of concern to Dr. Lowe and the RBA, is the extent of the fall. In the year to the March quarter, the annual rate of productivity fell by 4.5%. It's slowest pace on record since ABS data began in 1979. So Matthew, why is it so weak at the moment?
1: Yeah, it's an absolute shocker, isn't it? The latest productivity numbers and the, the fear is it's not just that reversal. Now we're in the slowdown. Now, you know, productivity starts to slow down cyclically. Why is there this underperformance? Well, there's a number of possible reasons. It could just be the way we measure productivity, it could be, for example, a change in the composition of the economy, which is leading on aggregate to this change in productivity growth. For example, during COVID, we saw a shift in spending towards goods. You know, as the service sector, Alison, in that period was largely locked down. And now we're seeing a swing back in the consumption spending by households Mm -hmm. back towards services. Now, the production of services is actually very labour intensive relative to the production of goods. So we tend to need proportionally more workers to produce a unit of service-based output than, say, goods-based output. Hence, when you look at the output and divide it by the number of workers, it looks like productivity's fallen simply because we've shifted to this more labour-intensive production skew. Sure, I mean I can see how that's
0: definitely part of the the story and and does make sense given the types of you know we were all very goods heavy during COVID and now we're all out you know enjoying services and so on again. But it seems a bit smokes and mirrors around the measurement issues. Labour shortages are surely having a bit of an adverse effect also.
1: Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. It can't just be that one issue. It might be a contributing factor. And you're right to point out the labour shortages. So what we've done is driven the rate of unemployment down to 3.5%, you know, lowest level in decades. And when you do that, the pool of productive workers that you can draw into employment is getting lower. You know, our labour force participation rate is at all-time mm-hmm. high. So we're inducing people into the workforce partly with higher wages and partly through a cost squeeze, so they want to work to be able to meet their bills. But we're pulling in the less productive workers into the labour force. And that skills shortage could also see firms reluctant to sack workers, even as the outlook deteriorates because of the difficulty to attract workers.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting dynamic. And of course, another aspect is that, you know, and potentially an elephant in the room is that it's hard to get productivity up um, if you're failing to match the growth in your workforce with growth in equipment and machinery, and there's been a real reluctance of businesses to invest. You're listening to Alison Hill and QIC's Take 10 podcast, where I'm discussing markets and economics with Dr Matthew Peter. So, Matthew, turning to the outlook, what are you thinking? Will productivity recover, and is it going to be enough so that it can offset that wage growth and lower the growth rate in unit labour costs to a rate that actually is going to be consistent with the RBA's
1: target inflation rate? Well, uh, Alison, it's probably fair to say at the moment, fingers crossed, <laughs> productivity growth has probably hit a cyclical low point. It's 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 going to improve from here. And as we talked about before, you know, where you would expect to see businesses, you know, start to think about increasing or, you know, at least starting to think about some redundancies decreasing its pace of employment it's unlikely that we'll see businesses want to not get hold of the best, most productive workers. They'll probably hold on to their, to their mm-hmm. labour force as best they can as growth slows. So if you're producing less and you've got the same workforce, unfortunately, that's not good news. That's not a great story for productivity over the remainder of the year. This means that unit labour costs While they might moderate a little because wage growth will eventually start to moderate, uh, it'll probably stay at its current high rate of growth, keeping pressure on costs and inflation. As a result, we think the RBA will be forced into at least one more rate hike and will need to keep rates at the terminal rate, whether that be uh, 4.35% or 4.6% if they could do two rate hikes from here. They'll have to keep it at that level into next year at least when finally production starts to pick up as we get the, you know, the impact of the uh, lower inflation rates, the uh, pickup in productive capacity from the uh, migration intake until the production starts to pick up in the economy and, and wage growth actually peaks. At that point, we expect to see productivity starting to improve, but it's going to be a period of, of probably another six months.
0: Well, a good pathway from here. And I think, you know, I tend to agree with you that, you know, markets will, you know, the RBA will keep the rate higher for a little bit longer to make sure that that's sort of in in check and and looking to international markets. We're seeing that dynamic as well, where we've got very strong employment, still got wage pressure growth um, and this la- concept of potential labour hoarding. And so I think it's a dilemma that's facing not only the RBA, but also some of the other major central banks around the world and thinking about how do they bring inflation under control with this dynamic in play. And speaking of the RBA, just in, it has been confirmed that Dr Lowe indeed will be leaving a top job at the RBA and replacing him will be Deputy Governor Michelle Bullock, an appointment that I think might catch a few people by surprise. Matt, is this the right call in the midst of a tightening cycle?
1: Well, it provides a continuity of the current deputy governor taking the place of the governor. So it gives that continuity of knowledge and experience uh, with, uh, within the bank of uh, current policy and of monetary policy more general. You know, you've got to look at some of the other candidates. They, they, they would have been coming into the bank without really any hands-on experience of monetary policy. In that sense, Alison, it does make perhaps a more um, uh, easier handover, particularly as you point out in the monetary policy tightening cycle. On the other hand, you wanna have to query the uh Reserve Bank review was all about because, you know, that review came about largely because of what seemed to be a failure of the Reserve Bank in its setting of monetary policy throughout COVID, in particular, the forward guidance, the The interest rates were going to be held at zero until 2024, which, you know, caused all sorts of ruptures in the Australian economy, the financial system. Now, in any other business where, you know, one of the members of the executive, remember, Michelle Bullock was assistant governor of financial system at the time those decisions were being made. So in another business where those decisions, you know, that were seen to be very poor decisions were being made and and the person was part of the executive team that was presumably party to those decisions, it would be unusual that they would be promoted into the CEO role, which is what has happened here. But nonetheless, um, we have that continuity, I suppose. We'll wait and see if, if Michelle Bullock brings a different perspective to the RBA and monetary policy setting than what Phil Lowe and his cohort did.
0: So Matt, over the last few weeks and months, we've talked a bit about the RBA review and certainly pondered on the fact that in our view, perhaps the RBA was a bit too inward-looking, and certainly that was a, a comment that came out in the review itself. So given that, does it make sense to have an internal appointee, or would it be better to have someone external with fresh eyes, do you think?
1: Yes, well, that that was the speculation. That's what probably I would have leant towards. But having said that, if you're going to take somebody from within the RBA. Michelle Bullock is, a, is cut from a slightly different cloth, I believe, say, to um, Phil Lowe, Guy Bell, those, those sorts of people. You know, Phil Lowe, Guy Bell, his era were very much the PhDs from MIT, from the Ivy League, US universities. They were very much came out of the Rational School of Economics, which is now out of favour, as we know, amongst particularly amongst you know, left-leaning uh, pundits and to some extent, the Labor Party. Michelle comes from a different background. She comes with a master's degree, for example, from LAC. She is far more vocal in terms of having a social conscience. And that, I think, you know, potentially itself leads to a slightly different lens that uh, RBA policy might be looked through.
0: Matthew, thank you for joining me again today. And thanks also to our listeners for taking 10.